heart of the bustling city, under the dim glow of neon lights, sat a small, unassuming radio station, its presence nearly swallowed by the surrounding concrete giants. Inside, Jonathan Crane leaned back in his chair, eyes closed, listening to the soft hum of the equipment. His show, Crane's Corner, was once a beacon of thoughtful commentary and investigative journalism. But now, it struggled to remain relevant in an age where sensationalism reigned supreme. Jonathan was a man in his early 40s, with a voice that could soothe or incite, a tool he had honed over years behind the microphone. He had entered the world of radio with ideals and dreams, but the harsh reality of declining ratings and looming financial troubles had chipped away at his once noble aspirations. Tonight, as the clock inched toward midnight, Jonathan opened his eyes, staring at the microphone before him. The red on-air sign flickered to life, casting a sinister glow across the room. He cleared his throat, a ritual before every broadcast, and began. Good evening, dear listeners. Jonathan's voice was a blend of warmth and mystery. Tonight, we delve into the shadows that lurk beneath our city's facade. Have you ever felt like something is amiss? That the world around you is not what it seems? He paused, letting his words hang in the air. Jonathan knew the power of a well-placed silence. It was in these moments that he connected most deeply with his audience, drawing them into his world. As many of you know, Crane's Corner has always been a place for the truth, no matter how uncomfortable. But lately, it seems our pursuit of truth is falling on deaf ears. It's time for a change, time to shake the foundations of our complacency. Jonathan's plan was simple yet dangerous. He decided to venture into the realm of conspiracy theories and unverified claims, a territory he had once dismissed as beneath his standards. He knew the risks, but the potential reward of renewed relevance and skyrocketing ratings was too enticing to ignore. Our city is not our own, Jonathan continued, his voice now a whisper, a conspiratorial tone that invited listeners closer. There are those among us in the shadows, pulling the strings. I've uncovered evidence of a secret society, operating right under our noses, manipulating our lives for their gain. The phone lines lit up, a sea of blinking lights like stars in the night sky. Jonathan smiled. It was working. People were listening, responding, engaging. He picked up a call. Jonathan, I've always suspected something like this. What can we do? The caller's voice trembled with a mix of fear and excitement. Jonathan leaned into the microphone. Stay vigilant, dear listener. Keep your eyes open. I will continue to unveil the truth. Together, 
we will expose the corruption that festers in the heart of our city. As the night wore on, Jonathan spun his web of intrigue and suspicion, each word carefully chosen to stoke the flames of curiosity and paranoia. He didn't believe half of what he said, but that didn't matter. What mattered was that people were listening, that Crane's Corner was once again a name on everyone's lips. As the first rays of dawn crept through the studio's blinds, Jonathan ended his broadcast. A sense of triumph mixed with a nagging sense of foreboding. He had set something in motion, something he couldn't control. But in his quest for relevance, Jonathan Crane had decided to ride the wave of chaos. Unaware of the devastation it would bring to the city he called home, as the weeks passed, Jonathan Crane's transformation was profound. He delved into the psychology of persuasion, studying how to evoke strong emotions in his listeners. The once respected journalist was now a puppeteer of public sentiment, his words weaving a tapestry of fear and paranoia. In his cramped apartment, Jonathan pored over books on crowd psychology and emotional manipulation. He learned to use his voice as a weapon, modulating its timber to sow seeds of doubt, to fan the flames of anger. He practiced in front of a mirror, watching the way his face changed with each inflection, each carefully crafted phrase designed to burrow deep into the minds of his audience. Crane's Corner became a nightly ritual for many, a gathering around the radio to hear Jonathan reveal more about the supposed secret society controlling their city. His claims grew more outlandish, more sensational. He spoke of clandestine meetings, of shadowy figures orchestrating events from behind the scenes, all without a shred of evidence. But evidence no longer mattered. Jonathan had tapped into something primal in his listeners, a willingness to believe the unbelievable, to fear the unseen. The city began to change. Graffiti depicting eyes and pyramids, symbols Jonathan used to represent the secret society, appeared on buildings. Groups of people gathered in the streets, sharing their own theories and suspicions conversations, a repeating chorus of Jonathan's nightly broadcasts. Violence erupted. A small protest outside a government building turned into a riot. The police, viewed as pawns of the secret society, were met with hostility. One night, a young officer, responding to a disturbance, was cornered and beaten to death by an angry mob. The city mourned the mob celebrated, believing they had struck a blow against their unseen oppressors. Jonathan heard about the death the next morning. For a moment, he paused, the gravity of the situation dawning on him. But then, he rationalized it away. He hadn't told them to kill. He hadn't thrown the punches. He was just a voice on the radio, sharing the truth as he saw it. 
he wasn't responsible for what people did with that truth. That night, he addressed the incident on his show. Tragic as it is, Jonathan spoke, his voice somber yet unyielding. We must not lose sight of the bigger picture. This city is under the thumb of a malevolent force. We must remain vigilant. We must continue to seek the truth. I mourn for the officer, but we cannot let our resolve waver in the face of tragedy. The calls came in, one after another, each voice echoing Jonathan's sentiment. They didn't blame him. They thanked him. They saw him as a beacon of light in a world shrouded in darkness. Jonathan Crane, once a seeker of truth, now found himself at the helm of a movement he no longer controlled. His words, once meant to inform, now incited chaos. And as the city spiraled further into violence and fear, Jonathan clung to his microphone, the architect of a nightmare from which there was no waking. As Jonathan Crane's influence grew, so too did the fervor of his most devoted listeners. Among them was a group that would soon become known as the Unveiled Brigade. Initially, they were just a handful of Jonathan's most ardent fans. Meeting in dimly lit basements and secluded corners of the city, discussing his latest broadcasts and theories. But as the weeks passed, their numbers swelled. They were drawn together by a shared belief in Jonathan's words, seeing themselves as warriors in a battle against the shadowy forces controlling their city. The unveiled brigade began to organize, their meetings becoming more structured, their goals more defined. The leader of this group was a man named Marcus Blackwell, a charismatic figure with a talent for stirring speeches. He had a way of making each member feel seen and important, a part of something much larger than themselves. Marcus took Jonathan's theories and turned them into a manifesto, a call to arms against the so-called oppressors. The time for passive resistance is over, Marcus declared in one of their gatherings, his voice echoing off the concrete walls. We are the unveiled brigade, the only ones brave enough to see the world for what it is. We must take action, show the secret society that we are not afraid, that we will not be controlled. Under Marcus's leadership, the Unveiled Brigade became more militant. They organized protests, at first peaceful, but soon turning violent as Marcus's rhetoric grew more extreme. They clashed with police, vandalized buildings they believed were fronts for the secret society, and harassed public officials. Jonathan Crane, once the voice of reason in the city, now unwittingly played the role of a prophet for this growing extremist movement. Each broadcast added fuel to the fire of their cause. The unveiled brigade hung on his every word, interpreting his messages as directives, even when Jonathan himself remained oblivious to the real world impact of his words. 
As the city descended further into chaos, the unveiled brigade became bolder. They started organizing mobs, roaming the streets at night, looking for supposed agents of the secret society. Innocent people were caught in the crossfire, targeted for wearing a certain type of clothing, or just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. The violence escalated. Fires burned in the streets. Businesses were looted. And the city's infrastructure began to crumble under the strain of constant unrest. The unveiled brigade, once seen as a fringe group, had become a symbol of the city's descent into anarchy. Jonathan, meanwhile, remained in his studio, his voice still broadcasting across the airwaves, seemingly detached from the havoc his words had wrought. He had started this journey seeking attention and relevance, but now found himself a central figure in a tragedy of his own making. The city he loved was tearing itself apart, and at the heart of it all was Crane's Corner, the show that had started as a beacon of truth, but had become a catalyst for chaos. As the city spiraled into anarchy, Jonathan Crane's descent into the abyss of his own making accelerated. The once calm streets were now battlegrounds, with fires casting eerie shadows on the buildings. The sounds of sirens and shouts filled the air, a cacophony of chaos that seemed to emanate from every corner. In the midst of this turmoil, Jonathan sat in his studio, a sanctuary amidst the madness. His show had become the most talked about broadcast in the city, perhaps even the country. People everywhere were tuning in to hear what he would say next. This attention was intoxicating to Jonathan, a validation of his talents and influence. Emboldened by his newfound fame, Jonathan pushed his narratives further into the realm of the extreme. His words were no longer just insinuations and theories. They became direct calls to action against the supposed secret society. We must reclaim our city, he proclaimed, his voice resonating with a sense of urgency and power. We cannot let them win. We must fight back against those who seek to control us. The unveiled brigade, now seeing themselves as Jonathan's army, took these words as sacred commands. They rampaged through the city, targeting buildings and people they believed were part of the secret society. The police, overwhelmed and outmanned, struggled to maintain any semblance of order. But Jonathan, in his pursuit of ratings and relevance, failed to see the monster he had created. He was no longer just a broadcaster. He had become a figurehead for a dangerous and uncontrollable force. His words, which once sought to uncover truths, were now twisted into weapons of incitement. Each night, as he sat before his microphone, Jonathan felt a rush of adrenaline. The city was listening to him, hanging on his every word. 
he felt like a conductor before an orchestra, each broadcast a symphony of his own creation. But outside the studio, the city was burning, its people caught in the grip of fear and violence. Families huddled in their homes, too afraid to venture outside. Businesses shuttered, their windows boarded up. The city's vibrant life had been choked out, replaced by a pervasive sense of dread and despair. And yet, Jonathan Crane, ensconced in his world of sound and fury, continued to stoke the fires of unrest, unaware that the flames he had ignited were about to engulf him as well. The city he had sought to awaken was now a shadow of its former self, a casualty of a war waged not with guns or bombs, but with words and ideas. The chaos that had engulfed the city reached a harrowing crescendo when Jonathan Crane's personal life was violently thrust into the eye of the storm. The day had started like any other in recent weeks, with the city bracing for more unrest. But for Jonathan, everything was about to change. His niece, Emily, a spirited and kind-hearted college student, had been caught in the midst of a riot. She had been downtown, participating in a peaceful counter-protest, advocating for calm and dialogue. Amidst the chaos, she saw a group from the unveiled brigade cornering a young boy, the mayor's son, intent on beating him for his father's supposed complicity in the city's corruption. Without hesitation, Emily intervened, trying to shield the boy with her own body. That's when it happened. A protester, his face obscured by a mask and fueled by blind rage, swung a skateboard, striking Emily in the head. The brutal attack was caught on video, a chilling testament to the city's descent into anarchy. The video spread like wildfire across the internet, uploaded by the unveiled brigade themselves. They proudly proclaimed the violence as a necessary act in their fight for freedom. But for Jonathan, watching the video the world came to a standstill. The screams, the chaos, the sickening thud of the skateboard. All of it burned into his memory. Emily was rushed to the hospital, her condition critical. Jonathan, sitting beside her bed, felt a crushing weight of guilt and despair. This was his doing. His words had ignited this madness. He had encouraged resistance, rebellion, but never like this. He looked at Emily's bruised and battered face, her future hanging in the balance, and his heart broke. That evening, Jonathan returned to his studio. A man changed. His voice, once a clarion call to action, was now somber, heavy with the burden of regret. My dear listeners, he began, his usual fervor replaced with a trembling vulnerability. Tonight, I come to you not as a voice of rebellion, but as a voice pleading for peace. The violence has gone too far. Today, my own niece lies in a hospital bed, fighting for her life. 
a victim of the chaos we have unleashed. The studio was silent. The usual bustle of activity paused as everyone listened to Jonathan's words. We sought to awaken the city, to challenge those in power. But in doing so, we have lost ourselves. We have become the very thing we fought against. This is not freedom. This is not justice. It's madness. Jonathan's voice cracked, the emotion raw and undeniable. I am calling for a ceasefire. To the unveiled brigade, to all those who have taken my words as a call to arms, I beg you to stop. We must find another way, a path back to peace and dialogue. We cannot allow our city, our home, to be torn apart by hatred and fear. The response was immediate and overwhelming. Calls flooded the station, some in support, others in anger. But Jonathan remained steadfast, using his platform to advocate for calm, for healing. As the night wore on, Jonathan sat alone in the dim light of the studio, a lone voice in the darkness, calling out for an end to the violence. He had started a fire he couldn't control, but now he was determined to do everything in his power to quell the flames. The cost had been too high, and he could only hope it wasn't too late to save the city he loved. Jonathan Crane's call for peace, a desperate attempt to undo the chaos he had unleashed, marked the beginning of his downfall. The unveiled brigade, which had once revered him as a visionary, now saw him as a traitor. To them, his change of heart was an act of betrayal, a sign that he had succumbed to the very forces he had once opposed. The brigade, now more radicalized and militant than ever, decided to take action. They declared Jonathan an enemy, a symbol of the corruption they believed they were fighting against. Their target became clear, the radio station from which Jonathan broadcasted, the place where it all began. One evening, as Jonathan prepared for his nightly show, the streets outside the station were eerily quiet. The usual buzz of the city had dimmed to a whisper. Then, suddenly, the silence was shattered. The sound of shouting, the clattering of makeshift weapons, the angry cries of the unveiled brigade filled the air. They surrounded the building, their faces obscured by masks and hoods. Some held signs denouncing Jonathan as a false prophet. Others wielded clubs and chains. They began to attack the station, smashing windows and breaking down doors. Determined to reach the man they now viewed as the root of their city's turmoil. Inside, Jonathan heard the chaos unfolding. The studio, once his haven, now felt like a trap. He looked around at the familiar equipment, the microphone through which he had spoken so many words, words that had led to this moment. Fear gripped him, a cold, paralyzing realization of the consequences of his actions. He made a desperate call to the police 
but he knew they were stretched thin, battling the ongoing unrest in the city. Jonathan was on his own. He barricaded himself in the studio, pushing desks and chairs against the door, but he knew it was a futile effort. The brigade broke through the building's defenses, their anger and betrayal fueling their rampage. They stormed through the hallways, overturning equipment, tearing down posters, their voices a chorus of rage. Jonathan, hidden behind his makeshift barricade, could hear them getting closer. He grabbed the microphone, his last link to the outside world. This is Jonathan Crane, he spoke, his voice trembling. To anyone listening, please send help. The unveiled brigade is here. They've broken into the station. I, I was wrong. I see that now, but this violence, it has to stop. His plea echoed out into the city, a desperate cry for help. But outside, the brigade continued their relentless advance. They reached the studio door, pounding against it, shouting for Jonathan to face them. Jonathan realized the end was near. The monster he had created was now at his doorstep, ready to consume him. He had wanted to awaken the city, to stir it into action. But in doing so, he had unleashed a darkness that could not be contained. As the door began to give way, Jonathan Crane, once the voice of a movement, now a man facing the consequences of his own recklessness, waited for the inevitable. His final broadcast, a haunting testament to the destructive power of words and the peril of unchecked ambition. As the pounding on the studio door grew more frenzied, something unexpected happened. The sounds of violence and anger from the unveiled brigade outside suddenly ceased. Confused, Jonathan cautiously approached the door, pressing his ear against the cool wood. Instead of the expected breach, he heard the distinct sound of heavy objects being dragged and piled up outside. The brigade had changed their plan. Rather than confronting Jonathan directly, they decided to imprison him within the very walls from which he had broadcast his incendiary words. They barricaded the door, trapping him on the eighth floor of the building, isolated and helpless. Jonathan, realizing his predicament, rushed to the window. Below, he saw members of the unveiled brigade strategically placing flammable materials around the building's base. His heart sank as he understood their intentions. They were going to set the building ablaze with him still inside. Panic set in as he watched the first flames lick the side of the building. He turned to his microphone, his last lifeline to the outside world. The on-air sign flickered hesitantly before steadying. Jonathan was live, perhaps for the last time. As Jonathan Crane realized the full extent of his predicament, trapped on the eighth floor with the building's lower levels in 
engulfed in flames. A profound sense of panic and desperation set in. He rushed to the studio's microphone, his last connection to the outside world, as thick smoke began to fill the room. The on-air light flickered and steadied, a grim beacon in the growing darkness. This is Jonathan Crane, he began, his voice trembling with fear and desperation. I am trapped inside the radio station. The unveiled brigade has barricaded the doors and set the building on fire. I need help, please. Anyone who can hear me. His plea was more than a call for rescue. It was a raw, emotional outpouring of regret and fear. The studio, once a place of power and control, now felt like a tomb, closing in on him with each passing moment. I don't know if I have much time, Jonathan continued, coughing as he inhaled the acrid smoke. I've made terrible mistakes. My words, they ignited this madness. I thought I was awakening the city, but I was playing with forces I didn't understand. Outside, the fire raged unabated, a monstrous entity consuming everything in its path. Jonathan, his eyes stinging from the smoke, strained to see through the window, hoping against hope for a sign of rescue. To the police, the very people I turned the city against, I beg you, if you can hear this, please help me. I was wrong, so terribly wrong. I see that now, but I'm trapped. I'm afraid. His voice broke as the reality of his situation sank in. The irony of his predicament was not lost on him. He had incited violence against the authorities, and now he was pleading for their help. I've spent my career behind this microphone, believing in the power of words, but I never understood the weight of that power, the responsibility. My words were supposed to reveal truths, but instead, they spread lies and fear. The heat in the studio was becoming unbearable, the air thick and suffocating. Jonathan's mind raced with images of his niece, Emily, lying in a hospital bed because of the chaos he had helped create. He thought of the city he loved, now torn apart by violence and distrust. To my niece, Emily, I'm so sorry. You were always the light of our family, and I've brought you into this darkness. I hope you can forgive me. To the city, to those who listened to me, believed in me. I led you astray, and for that, I can never apologize enough. Tears streamed down his face as he spoke, his voice a mixture of anguish and desperation. This is likely my last broadcast. If anyone is listening, Please, send help. I don't want to die like this. Not like this. The fire was now at the door of the studio, its hungry flames licking at the edges. Jonathan's voice, once a commanding presence on the airwaves, was now a mere whisper, a faint cry in a sea of chaos and destruction. I am Jonathan Crane, and this is, this is the end of Crane's Corner. I'm sorry, so deeply sorry for everything. 
please remember me not as the man who incited this chaos, but as a man who, in his final moments, realized the true cost of his actions. Goodbye. In a sterile hospital room, bathed in the pallid light of fluorescent bulbs, Emily Crane lay motionless, her life hanging in the balance. Bandages wrapped her head, a stark contrast to her young, bruised face. Machines beeped rhythmically, a mechanical symphony that underscored the gravity of her condition. Beside her bed, a small radio crackled to life, the familiar voice of her uncle, Jonathan Crane, filling the room. It was a voice she had grown up hearing, one that had always been a source of comfort and wisdom. But today, it was laden with fear and desperation. Emily's eyes flickered slightly, a faint sign of awareness as Jonathan's pleas for help echoed through the speakers. The nurses, who had been attending to her, paused, their expressions turning to ones of concern and disbelief as they listened to the unfolding tragedy. The broadcast was raw, filled with emotion. Jonathan's voice, once so strong and confident, now trembled with terror. He spoke of being trapped, of the fire consuming the radio station, his words painting a vivid and harrowing picture. Emily, in her critical state, was vaguely conscious, drifting in and out of awareness. In her lucid moments, she could hear her uncle's voice, the fear in it piercing through the fog of her own pain and confusion. Then, amidst the desperate pleas, a change occurred. The tone of the broadcast shifted from fear to acceptance, a heart-wrenching farewell as Jonathan realized his fate was sealed. His final words, a mixture of apology and regret, filled the room, a haunting echo that would linger long after. The nurses exchanged worried glances, one of them moving to turn off the radio to spare Emily any further distress. But as her hand reached for the dial, Jonathan's screams pierced the air, a chilling sound that froze everyone in place. The radio broadcast Jonathan's final moments live, his screams of terror and agony as the flames engulfed him. The nurses stood in stunned silence, the reality of what they were hearing too much to comprehend. In her bed, Emily's heart rate monitor quickened, the beeps becoming more rapid as her body reacted to the traumatic sounds. Her eyes, clouded with pain and medication, showed a glimmer of recognition, a deep personal anguish for the uncle she had loved and admired. The screams eventually faded into static, the broadcast ending in a haunting silence that filled the room. The nurses quietly turned off the radio, their faces solemn, their hearts heavy with the weight of the tragedy they had just witnessed. Emily lay there, her breathing shallow, the last echoes of her uncle's desperate pleas etched into her memory. 
in her fragile state, trapped between life and death. She was a silent witness to the devastating conclusion of a story that had begun with words and ended in flames. The impact of Jonathan Crane's final moments, broadcast for all to hear, would reverberate through the city. A chilling reminder of the destructive power of influence and the irreversible consequences of actions fueled by ambition and manipulation. <laughs>